Welcome to the final edition of Series 1 of Hit the Lights. I have a very special guest to end this uh, finale episode, Mr. Paul Meenan. How are we? Hello. <laughs> She's on the other foot for a change? Uh, yeah, definitely on the other foot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the best thing about podcast world, we kind of wing it gracefully, don't we, when we're doing these? So, yes. So, Mr. E5, I'd like to go back to the beginning, if possible, and tell me how you came to enter the electrical industry. Okay, I'll give you the abridged version because there is there is a um, there is a I did a, a, a story of my life to the IET about three years ago, which was the first time I ever told my life story, if you can call it that. Even I just got asked basically, can you do a talk? And I was like, what about? And they went, well, your journey from whatever to chartered fellow. And I was like, okay, so I did it, and they loved it. I literally got a stand ovation, and I swore I'd never tell it again. Then I went to GSH, Gary. And then he filmed it because like, he wanted me to do it with his learners. So it's on YouTube if you're listening. Um, so um, I I went to, uh, I was born, um, I'm five of ten kids. My mum and dad had five kids. Um, my dad had two more daughters. My mum had three more kids. I only found that out when I was 21. I went to a Catholic primary school, St. Ignatius, St. Thomas More Secondary School. Um, generally, we were beaten up more than or dragged up, whatever way you want to call it. Um, born in Tottenham, so I'm a diehard Spurs fan, otherwise I wouldn't be alive and breathing. Um, I loved school because when I was in school, I was the mad lunatic joker who used to do, like, I used to do loads of voices and stuff. I can't do that good anymore. But years ago, when I was 18 years old, I used to have so many impressions. Everyone used to call me Harry Enfield. Mm. And, um, yeah, I, I basically left school with no GCSEs. I got, I got stabbed, so I pretty much sat my GCSE exams cry my eyes out because there was no such thing as therapy or support back then and um i walked out of school and i cried all the way home thinking what the hell do i do i'm losing my family because my school friends were my family without a doubt they were more of a family than my actual family was i spent more time with them and um yeah i kind of hated life and didn't know what to do and the only thing i did like in school was theater lighting so i stayed on for an extra year just as an excuse really to be a teenager for another year uh, did a GMVQ in leisure and tourism. <laughs> it was a new qualification. We were the first people yeah. trying it in the country. What the hell was that? It was an excuse to just, you know, hang around with your mates for a year longer or less of your mates. So the relationships got more intense mm. because there was less of you in, in, in that first year of sixth form. And yeah, I kind of loved doing the theatre lighting and I thought, I know, I've got it. I'll do theatre lighting for a job because I love it. Great. So there was a place called Mountview Theatre School in Crouch End. And I volunteered one summer to, to operate the lighting board and do stuff. And I really, really, really enjoyed it. I did a ballet. It was really weird. But hey, it was free labor. They didn't care. And um, I learned loads. And I thought, I'm going to do this. But if I'm going to do it, I'm not very smart because I don't have the qualifications. So I need to I need to do something that makes me stand out. And, and then that was literally I, I then had to go and sign on. I had no choice. I signed on the dole. And um I was signing on for, I think I signed on for about eight, six to eight weeks. Hmm. A weird story about signing on. I went to Tottenham um, uh, Job Centre and I was probably one of the only people who didn't drive a BMW or Mercedes Benz. Tottenham Job Centre was so defrauded by <laughs> drug dealers and gangsters and yardies and utes that were signing on. And you'd sit, you'd stand there and look at them and go, you don't need a, f am I allowed to swear in this? Uh prefer not to <laughs> okay well you don't need a bleeping um dull check you're actually bleeping the system mm. um so yeah um that that annoyed i wanted to get off it so bad because we grew up on benefits as well and my dad worked full time and those benefits i remember having to get them from the post office they were like two pound 40 a week per child it was mm. nothing it was nothing yeah. uh, but in them days it was enough to get you one shop load in tesco for the whole family and that's kind of how we survived um and so I thought, I know, I'm, oh, the, the, the person sat me down and went, oh, you should get a trade. I was like, really? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's free training, free training. So go and be a plasterer or a plumber or a bricklayer or maybe one of those electricians. I went, oh, electrician, yes, got it. And it just clicked. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I know, I will become an electrician. I will then do the theatre lighting and it will make me better at the theatre lighting because I'll be able to do the wiring and understand all the electricery part of it, which will make me stand out, which will make me more, uh, hopefully, 
uh, I will get the jobs more. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That was the goal. And I was working nights while I was in school um, at Coca-Cola and Schweppes. It was um, it was a life experience. I got to meet some amazing people. Um, my nickname was Hamlet. Everyone called me Hamlet in my in that job. Yeah. Uh, because I loved drama and theatre and <laughs> all that stuff. So nobody actually knew. It's a true story. Nobody actually knew me at Coca-Cola Schweppes as Paul. Right. Everyone knew me as Hamlet. So when I used to go around and introduce myself, if I went from days to nights, I go hi, I'm Paul. I go who? And I go. Um, everyone calls me Hamlet. Oh yeah, we know you. <laughs> and I, I did that for nearly a year while I was at school. So it got me super super fit. This this true story. I went for a uh, what's the word they use for? You know when you can get a scholarship to pay mm. for. So I was going for a scholarship to get free uh, access. So what I was going to do was do the um, theatre lighting. Uh, I think it was a HNC in theatre lighting and do my sitting guilds at the same time. Right. So I was literally going to do part-time electrical installation, part-time lighting. So I literally was wanting to double up. And I went for the first day's interviews. And honest to God, it was it was brilliant because I walked in. I was fresh as a daisy. And they would say, oh, um, it was a proper competency-based interview. So they'd sit there and go, name a play by George Bernard Shaw. And I'd go back to Methuselah. And they'd go, correct. <laughs> you know, And I was like, oh, my God. Now, luckily... I'd studied quite a lot. All the plays that I was doing in school were the questions. There was a right. complete irony. So I knew it all. Rosencrantz, Guildenstern and Dead, Tom Stoppard. I still remember all this weird junk. <laughs> and um, we, um, I had the interview. It was a two-day one. And I left the interview. I went to work. I ended up doing overtime. And I got home about half six in the morning, sat on the couch thinking, second day of interview, don't you dare miss it. Fell asleep, didn't I? Yeah. Missed it. And um, so that was it. That was uh, that was it. I could, couldn't afford to do HNC and lighting. So I threw myself into the electrical installation classes that were starting, um, went to a local pub, got the Yellow Pages, rung up probably about 60 or 70 companies that were in the Yellow Pages and said, look, have you got any jobs? And then one company in Camden said, come along. They were a suspended ceiling fitter and electrical contractor. Mm-hmm. They did both. They did very well. And um, I was a formally registered apprentice with them. I was there for a year. And then sadly, the boss got MS. So the original owner of the company took over, who did his apprenticeship during the war. And he was great because I used to get paid in a little brown envelope and he'd count out my bus fares. And I was on like £17 a week, I think it was saying silly plus bus pass. And um, it was really good. I met some really inspirational guys. The best guys were the ones who were the least qualified, mm-hmm. weirdly. Um, and I learned um, how not to do things and I learned how to do things. And after a, a sweet short year, I had a level of confidence, but they went they went into liquidation, found myself back in a pub, um, ringing up these agencies. And these agencies then said, oh, are you an electrician? I went, no, I'm, I'm, I need to finish my apprenticeship. Oh, well, can you be, you know, can you be a mate? And I was like, I don't really have any mates. We've all gone bankrupt. We've all split her up. You know, I don't I don't really call them mates. They work. I didn't know what a mate was. Yeah. When you join this industry, you don't know what these terms are. Mm. When someone says, can you be an electrician's mate? Well, I could be anyone's friend. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it was like, well, I didn't know. I didn't have the social skills at that age. Between the ages of 15 and 25, you go on a massive journey of growing your social uh, skills and your social interaction knowledge and just enhancing and realizing everybody's had different upbringings and backgrounds. So um, I took a job as a mate at a depot. I turned up at this depot. There was mountains of uni strut and this mad Irishman turned up and he went, chop them up, will you? These are the measurements. And I was like, "Okay, got a hacksaw. Yeah, there's loads of blades in there. And he walked away. And he come back like four days later and I had it all chopped up. And he went, oh, you haven't filed them. I said, well, I've only just finished chopping them up. When I got, got them all filed and got them all painted, I was like, okay. So I did that, you know, did it a day later. We come back, he went, good, right. I had all these metal splinters in my fingers and stuff from filing Unistrut. And then he come back and he went, why don't you use the baking slicer? And I went, I don't even know what a bacon's what. I know what a baking slicer is. It's a chop saw. Yeah. I didn't know. So I just said, I got the ump and I just said, look, mate, I want to work hard. I need to learn. I, I don't know what this electrician's mate role is. I just want to learn. And he said, all right, come with me. The main governor came down the next Monday and he said, right, this is what we're going to do with you. Just help the lads out. And I was kicking the lads because I wanted to learn. What's this? Why are you doing like that? Can I do that? Can I do that? Can I do this? Can I do that? I'd run around, you know, get the cherry pickers, go and drive them in. I, I was super keen. And within about two weeks, 
my boss said, do you want to register with a JRB as a, an apprentice? Mm. Um, we'll register you. Come on on the books. And I was like, yay, I'm on the books. you got to take an 80% pay cut. Shit. Because, oh, sorry. Um, no, it, that's all right. <laughs> it, was, it was a reduction from agency rates down to the minimal, minimal apprentice rates, which was really poor. But mm. I took it and I was beasted, beaten, bantered, tricked. First armoured I ever landed was a 1854 core. They gave me a um, um, uh, an, an S-type gland, which is a smaller diameter, which meant I spent a whole day trying to make a gland fit and it wouldn't fit. Yeah. So I went home crying, thinking I'd been defeated. Um, I got some great experiences and I met some wonderful people. I met some horrible people. Um, and I just, by the time I finished my apprenticeship, I, I, I'd learned the railway, mm. but I realised I hadn't. Because I used to see these people on track and I wanted to learn the track. So I went and did signaling and I just wanted, do you know what? I threw myself into it. I know I've, I've always admitted that I doubled up during my 20s. I wanted to do central eating wiring because I was scared of it. I did some railway signaling. I did whatever I could to diversify my knowledge. And I was very open with my fears. I've never done it before, but I want to be the best at it mm. or at least conquer that fear. Um, and that's what I kind of did, really. And I never looked back. The minute I came out of my time, it was straight away pretty much either you know being running jobs or putting in charge of jobs or foreman and that yeah. comes with a whole different level of banter and abuse especially from blokes older than you but it's all part of the learning curve yeah definitely so did you find the progression quite easy i'm assuming you stayed with the same company for a while no, then and no 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 i finished my apprenticeship i'm the managing director um who is an app I, I look at him almost as a second father um i i loved him too much to not be honest with him and i was honest with him probably too much and we had a small falling out and i would say small falling out because we we speak regularly and i've hugged him many a times and he's been very supportive and encouraging every time we spoke and i love him dearly but at that time we just had a falling out and um i wanted to do something different i was i was bored easily i didn't want a metal munch i didn't want to just do industrial i wanted i wanted to know everything mm. about the rail industry and, and now I can look back and say, well, I've worked as an electrical contractor, a tier one civil contractor, as a client across London Underground, Network Rail and DLR. Mm. Not many people can say they've done three layers at all three levels. Yeah. And it was it was how my brain worked. It wanted to understand that big picture. Um, the journey, I didn't realize I was going to do any I was going to do reasonably well in my career until... Until I joined EDF, I think it was 2004, and I just went in. I was kind of doing all the jobbing work, you know, doubling up and stuff, and I was fed up with it. And I thought, I'll get a stable job, get a stable job. You know, I'm fed up with not sleeping with the missus and working night shifts and all that sort of stuff. And I um, I basically said to the missus, um, I'm going to try for a job at EDF. There was adverts going. They were rewiring London Underground, and I applied for a site engineer role had an interview and because I had been well taught I got the job mm. got the second interview and everything and I went to a work for a guy called Max and within about six weeks I was watching all these people doing you know there was hundreds of project engineers probably about 70 or 80 project managers I mean there was over if I remember rightly at their peak there two and a half thousand electricians right. in London alone across 110 sites um, with project managers, project engineers, program managers. So that whole hierarchy of management, I saw that for the first time. So I had to decipher that. Mm. I had to understand how it worked and the politics behind it. I hated it, but I took it as a learning experience. How long uh, do you think that took you to About to gauge three, that? four years. It's an apprenticeship in itself. Yeah. It's another apprenticeship. That's the thing. If you change, if you go work for a civil engineering company, a tier one contractor, it will take you three to four years before... I mean, I was at Morgan Sindel for about just under five years, and it took me probably a year to make some very close friends, two years for the business to understand I was the pipes and wires guy, three years for the business to have faith and trust, and mm. four years I was running around the country managing about nine projects from Scotland all the way down south. No. Um, it was It was insane, but everybody just saw you for that little portion of the work you did. Um. It is everything's a learning curve, I suppose. And I um I asked some questions about who does all the testing. Why is nobody talking about testing? Why is nobody talking about compliance? You know, I, at the time I learned a fair bit of the regs, but I was reading it more and more and more in my day job because I had to. I was sat in an office, so I took it an opportunity. 
And I said to my boss, who's the NIC guy here? Because I knew what the NIC was. I was reading up on them. Mm. And he went, oh, I don't know. I said, well, who the hell does all the signing off of the certificates? Who does all the compliance stuff? And he went, I don't know. I don't think we've got anything. So I went home, I fell asleep, and I imagine, I literally had a dream where there was a testing and well, an inspection and testing department, and their goal was to support the electricians, be independent, make sure that the electricians weren't forced on site to cut corners. Um, and I basically went in, wrote it down on an email to my boss. Um, my boss came back and he said, um, good business case. Um, you're now the inspection. You've now been promoted to project engineer from site engineer. You get a pay rise. Um, so this was within six months. Um, you're now going to be put forward as the NIC, EICQS, and we're going to get registered because we're not even registered because that yeah. contracted division wasn't registered. And that was that. That was that was it then. It was I became this. Um, what did they call me again? Uh, Oracle. That was the nickname because basically I was fed up with in my career people lying to me about railway standards. You can't do that because the standard says no. So I made a few phone calls and found a guy called Ray Roberts, who was in charge of London Underground Standards. When I met him, he gave me a copy of every single one, 3,260 odd there was, mm. um, on a DVD or a CD. No, it was a pack of CDs, actually, at the time. Yeah. Um, and I basically took them, put them onto the server, printed them out, got a highlighter pen and started reading anything about electrical first, then fire, highlighting all the keywords that spark not an engineer that spark needed to know and when i finished it i highlighted the title to indicate i'd read it put it on the shelf when i got through all of them i then picked them up and i read just the highlighted bits before you knew it i memorized most of the standards mm. and then and then the technical challenges we were having on sites so i was using the regs and i just became this wikipedia of london underground and technical standards but then after about two years that i got bored so i thought oh network rail standards I did, the exact, <laughs> I did the exact same with network rail network rails ones were rubbish they were yeah. terrible there's just no information in them right just no okay. information they're, they're of no real quantitative element that improves the quality of the works i would put them on on the same level as um the bsm 6m1 leaves you guessing sometimes if you don't know your fundamental principles in that respects right okay um, but so, yeah, go on. No, no, I was just going to say, so they supersede the regs. Is that is that? They do, yeah. T- t- yeah, railway standards hiring. always. If you look at hierarchy of legislation, you'll have like the EU directives, which are the directives across Europe. And yes, we still have to comply with them. And then you'll look at the primary legislation, Health and Safety at Work Act or the Enabling Act. And then under that, you'll have regulations, Electricity at Work regulations. Under that, you'll then have the BSEN suite of standards. Under that, you'll then have, uh, or above it, depending on, on the industry, you'll then have sp- industry-specific requirements, standards, processes, procedures. And then underpinning all of that should be things like the wiring rigs, the guidance notes, you know, and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I genuinely, I, I find it embarrassing. If people want to argue over a reg number, I just sit there and I just go, oh, well, we need to develop your knowledge. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I've kind of... Probably for the last when I first when I was at EDF, if someone did something wrong, I went straight into argument mode and I would just I'm embarrassed of by it. But I just was unintentionally aggressive with people and I never wanted to. I was passionate about doing it right, but I didn't consider people's feelings. Now, um, I, well, a few years after I left EDF, I realized if you knowledge gain, knowledge shared. So everything mm-hmm. I gain, I'll share. And what I was doing was then changing the way I was approaching and trying to gauge the person I was with's understanding mm. so that if I, if I could tell they didn't understand it, I'd then take them on an educational journey. Yes, it made my, my day longer, but by the end of the day, hopefully if that person had the integrity to turn around and go, I didn't know any of that. Thanks for that. Great. Now they do. They won't yeah. forget it. You never forget when people are nice to you. Mm. Um, and that was when I started thinking, well, it's, it's just nice to be nice. It's nicer to be nice to be honest with you. So, Avoid the conflict, avoid the the people who want the conflict and just carry on being nice. But it's been hard. Yeah. So you, you mentioned about going through from being a sub subcontractor to a tier one to a client. What are some of the things you've carried through, say, from each transition that you've had? Clients In- are terrible. Clients, clients are idiots. They don't know what they're doing. The trouble is, is clients are also brilliant who are visionaries. And the trouble is, is the bottom can't see what the top's doing, because when the bottom looks up, all they see is the pigeons pooing on them. Um, And the top look down, they don't understand this weird caveman type language. 
Mm. Um, I always swore blind that when I came off the tools permanently, I would wake up every morning and remember you're an electrician from Tottenham. Don't develop an ego. I met one bloke in a lift once who I'll never forget it. It was a brand new day in a new office. I'd been transferred. And I got in the lift with this guy and I went, hello, mate, how you doing? I'm Paul. And he, and he looked at me, looked down at me. And I went, yeah, I'm Paul. I'm the like project engineer. I do all the pipes and wires stuff, the compliance things for EDF. What do you do? I, um, this is true. He went, I am the deputy chief engineer for systems integration and engineering. Who are you to me? And I was just, I wanted to knock him out. I wanted to knock him out. I, honest to God, I, I literally, red mist, I wanted to knock him out. I yeah. was so angry in my younger years. And I just thought there's no need to be arrogant. Job titles mean nothing. You know, every project I've worked on that I've been really proud of, and I try and make it a point to be proud of every job I do, it's behavioural. It's always people and it's always behaviours. If you can inspire the right behaviours and inspire the people that this isn't a job where we're all going to dump on each other, mm. you can work miracles, man. Yeah. You can work miracles. Yeah, you definitely can. So in terms of the, the railway then, and some of the difficulties through those different stages that you've had, what have been some of the particular challenges that you've faced at each level? Okay, so at each level, uh, e- uh, I suppose, right, for putting it very simply, EDF, I knew too much for my own good. And I, I became a threat to other people who didn't know as much. And in fairness, my social skills wasn't quite there. I'll admit that. Um, I was fed up at EDF of civil engineering companies trying to, well, they were bullying my friends. So Metronet was made up of like Balfour Beatty and their subbies who were basically just, you know, like Billy Big on site trying to bully all the subbies. And it was supposed to be a family, Metronet Alliance, and they kept rebranding and changing all the time. And I was fed up with the bullying and I saw it. And I have this habit of the only time I can see red mist is when I, I end up having to almost bully bullies, which is a horrible term, but stand up to them. It's probably the correct term. Yeah. And uh, I saw a good friend of mine have a breakdown. He had a nervous breakdown. And I got then told, you've got to finish delivering this project. And I, I didn't understand this whole tier one civil engineering. So I thought, right, sod this. I've, I've done what I can at EDF. I can't do any more. I'm working day and night. I'm not getting the monetary thanks for it. I've done enough. I've written the standards. I've written, mm. you know, my name's still in London Underground's inspection and testing standards. So I'd, I'd done all my bucket list things. Yeah. I'd grown the team, grown the department. A lot of the people who I interviewed and took off the tools are now electrical engineers at London Underground, mm. which and they're principals now, which is really cool, which is why I still have a good rapport. Anytime I go back onto London Underground in any way, if I deal with anyone in the electrical department, we're all like family. It's yeah. great to see each other. It's a bit of a reunion. Um, but I, I took a risk and I went for a job. An agency rang me up and said, oh, we got this job, civil engineering contractor. They need an m and manager. I was like, OK, yeah, I'm not interested. Um, and a week later, this agency rang me up and said, can you just go and have a chat with this bloke on a site? I was like, yeah, OK. A bit weird. Mm-hmm. So I booked half a day of work to go and help him because I thought it's nice to be nice. And it, he was demolishing Shepherd's Bush and he said, oh, I'm having all these problems. And he just confessed his, you know, his woes. And I just said, well, you're not doing that right. You're not doing that right. Because I had 110 station rewire refurbishment lessons learned in my head. Mm. So I was going, well, you're not doing this right. You're not doing that right. And then after three hours, he went, do you want the job? And I went, what job? And he said, I'll oh, project manager. And I was like, and my part of my brain went, this is your chance to put your money where your mouth is. Mm. Do it. So I took it. Um, I got a good pay rise out of it. And for the first time ever, I mean, it was in, it was a 68 million pound job. I was the M&E manager just for it. It's the M&E package manager, but it was a civils and an M&E guy. Mm. And um, we I lived on the job for 18 weeks. I spent 16.2 million pound in those 18 weeks. I realized at an early stage because my contractor had gone bankrupt. So they mm. were waiting to get paid off. And the only way I could do it is by holding their hands almost so i would go into a war room in the morning meeting get kicked for not delivering even i just started and then turn around and not kick my men but try and inspire them and build the confidence and direct them and and encourage them and wrap a comfort blanket around them and say this isn't like other jobs Mm. this is all i need from you for now anyone kicks you they're kicking me and i'll kick back and boy oh boy was i up for a fight and i fought back and I mm. kicked the civil engineer. Every civil engineer that came near me to kick me, they got a kicking five times harder. 
Yeah. And because of my knowledge of the standards and my reputation in London Underground, when London Underground turned up, they basically went, just listen to what Paul tells you and you'll be fine. Yeah. So it was a great endorsement for me. And um, yeah, we delivered the job. Um, it was hell on earth. We got drunk every Friday night in the pub. Um, I loved it, but we all agreed we were mad. And I made some friends. My best friend in life was the sub agent for the tunneling below ground. Mm. So my best mate started off as a tunneler, Colin. Um, and yeah, so we're still ribbing constantly now. Anytime I meet, we meet new people, I go, he digs holes and fills them with concrete. And then he goes, yeah, and he just does pipes and wires. <laughs> Boring, eh? <laughs> yeah. So um, no, it's it, it's great to have their relationships. And I'm, I went around Morgan Sindel. I delivered Cooling the Tube, um, which was fascinating because I was told go and do PLCs. And I was like, I don't even know what PLC is. Crap, I better learn. I better mm. learn. And I did. Um, but because of my testing background, it was very quick to pick up. I um, delivered a uh, new platform island at Cambridge. And I just tried to make the projects better and put my own stamp of quality before the cost. And and also the electricians not to be stressed because mm. I wanted them to. Rem- I, I remember looking back and saying, that was a good job. And every time you look back, it was always the individuals that led the work that made the job good. Mm. So I, I swore blind that anything I did the guys would look back and go, that was good because of good people, not necessarily the badge that the company or the name of the company were. Um, and this is what I found with contractors. The contractor is only good as their managing director. Mm. If the managing director is a bad attitude, the whole company has a bad attitude. If the managing director is positive and truly passionate about safety. It's a lovely place to work in. Um, and the only conflicts you get between individuals. Yeah. never about the work and that's that's what i found so i loved morgan sindel i worked myself to nearly to death um i ended up bursting two discs in my spine which was my body's way of saying stop mm. and um i took i think i was off work for four and a half months which was the mm. longest time yeah and i came back i had a fallout because i went through five directors in my time at morgan sindel yeah. Um. And the the one that I went to was just not a nice human being, although he professed he was a people person. He wasn't. He right. was just an arrogant person. Sadly, I'm sure he's a lovely bloke, but I, all I ever saw was just this arrogant, dismissive person who didn't want to listen to the pipes and wise guy. And considering I'd knocked my pipe out for four and a half years with them, mm. I just and I'd been there longer. Um. It was a weird time, so I I kind of just agreed to not go back um and then uh, a friend of mine rung me up from an agency and he went um can you go and speak to this guy um he needs somebody who knows everything there is to know about railway standards and i only know you so i was like yeah sure fine i'll go and have a chat and i, I went to first capital connect who were a train operator i met a guy called ian who was an absolute sweetheart he's since retired and um he said oh we've got a problem and I said, what's that? He said, oh, we've got a problem here where our fire alarm panels burn out like two, three times. Our lights keep burning out. I said, it <clears throat> sounds like voltage transients or spikes or something. <clears throat> have you have you refurbished the building? He went, yeah, yeah, it's been done by others. I said, well, where's the earthing and bonding strategy? You know, where's the protection against over voltages? And oh, right. And he went and I said, well, it's in the network. And I literally quoted all the standards in the meeting to him. Mm. And it turned out he spent two years figuring that out, which I solved in about two minutes. Right. Um, and I said to him, it sounds like where your pan goes up and your DC shoe gear goes down. You've got a direct link um, from there's no uh, diode earthing there. So you've probably got a direct link and it's either getting pummeled by massive traction uh, energy loads, whether it be AC or DC and higher voltages. And it was. Yeah. It was. Um so that was an investigation needed doing. And he just uh, he kind of just when I left us, they said, oh, well, we'll let you know. And I was like, well, whatever. You know, I weren't I weren't looking for a job in such, um, although I knew it was in the interview it was going to become a job. And I kind of thought, well, if it comes out, I got off the tube 20 minutes later and there was a phone call going, when can you start? They love you. Mm. And it's a six month contract. I'd never been a consultant before. That turned into four and a half years. Right. I literally left the last day of the franchise. Um, I've got loads of really nice thank you letters and, and references on my LinkedIn. Um, and I loved it because nobody knew I was a consultant, which was great. Um, loads of people used to say to me, Cor, if you um, if you were a consultant, you'd probably get away with far more. And I'd, be, I'd just sit there and, and snigger because it was my job. I worked in the projects team. 
um, as an asset engineer receiving their work from them. And the projects team were like, when you go up to them and say, what's your background? They'd go, oh, I used to manage uh, bookies in Norwich. Mm. So there's no technical knowledge. There's no project management. It's just, there you go. Here's a 32 grand a year job as a project manager. Away you go. So they don't know about quality. They don't know about anything. So rather than kicking them, um, although I did on the first one, because I had to show them that there's a better way of doing things, um, I just went into education overdrive. And I spent four and a half years educating some of the best people I've ever worked with. Yeah. And in return, they taught me the lost part of the railway I never knew, which is operations, signal sighting, you know, S car markers, all of the operational stuff that is a little secret cartel of knowledge. Mm. I got to go and get, you know, book trains and take them out. Um, all sorts of funky stuff. I got, I really, it kind of like finished my application of railway knowledge um, and operations knowledge. So it was great. I didn't want to leave and it was the best job I've ever had in my career. Mm. But you did leave. The franchise was over and I was a, I was a day rate contractor. And God bless my boss, um, because every six months I looked for a job because I didn't want to overstay my welcome. And he turned around to me once and he said, um, your funding runs out from the DFT on this date. I'm going to keep you for an additional five months. So you have five months notice. Now, as a consultant, that was just mind blowing. And to this day, I, I have so much respect for that guy because he didn't have to do any of that. Yeah. He didn't have to do any of that. And he did, though, because I was obsessed with saving the taxpayer money and breaking some of the lazy behaviours you do get, sadly, in rail. Yeah. But, yeah. And I've been a client ever since. Went on from there to the DLR and now CTC. That's the long and short of it, although we've been talking for ages. No, no, yeah. Um, so what about your day-to-day role at the moment, then? What are you kind of overseeing and doing at the moment? Day, uh, day, oh, well, so um, I uh, I left DLR because they were going through this transformation thing, which um, was quite prejudiced in many a way. I'll leave it at that. Um, and I was bored. Oh, there was not much going on. It was like just trying to get anything started. You're the only one who wanted to do work. And I'm, I'm genuinely somebody who likes to get things done. I don't mind the quiet periods, but it was just like transformation of the business meant a lot of your friends were leaving getting sacked getting moved on it, it just weren't it wasn't a very nice atmosphere it becoming toxic from an emotional mental health perspective and i met um, my current boss at um, a lighting event and he did a presentation and uh, again funnily enough an agency rung me up and said oh there's this train operator and i was like I don't want to go to train operator again i can't be asked i've done it I've done it. I don't want to go back. Oh, no, but, um, yeah, it'd be interesting. Just just go and have the chat. And I was like, you know what, I'll go and have the chat. And I went and had the chat, and, and they wanted a presentation on what is asset management. So I did one. And yeah. I started the presentation. They stopped me halfway through, and I thought, oh, no, I've screwed this up. And they brought my directors in, and they said, can you start again? And I did it, and apparently I blew them away. But I went in there as a qualified asset manager. They, the, the, the current – we're on a journey of we have an asset management system – but I was the first asset manager who had a technical engineering background. Mm. Um, my day to day, I can do anything from instruct some electricians to change uh, 3000 column heads. I can then later that day sit in a workshop with 50 people for three new stations that are being built. A day after that, I can then sit with my civils colleague who I managed to um, convince we needed because it was too much for me to do by myself because I had literally three new station builds, like seven new access for all bridges. You can't physically do all that yourself. You just can't change and upgrade and update by yourself. Mm. Um, so we've now got a small team of six of us. And um, yeah, it can be anything, anything from meetings, design reviews, design reviews can take a week or two because there's so much documentation. I do find it funny when I do a design review because I tend to do a thorough one and even though a quick thorough one and when we get the document review notifications um, there'll be someone from another company that will say have done 20 comments and I'll have done 460 yeah um, and and mine's and it'll be the same the same documents have been read but I look at the, all the documents of right I'm the spark on site how do I build this I'm aware of what the design level is but I'm also aware of what the criteria for the design uh, production is so I know at the network rail grip stage four, for instance, um, what they're supposed to deliver. 
Um, and they have all these different forms and various grip stages, which is a guide to railway investment. But it doesn't really work on M&E because when you do an electrical design and you ha- if someone says, how many lights do you have for a concept? Well, the only way of knowing is by doing the design, is it not? Mm. So why would you do the design once and then do it again later on for a further detail? You wouldn't. All you're doing is just putting more. And the fact of the matter is you do design once, but for some weird reason on the railway, it becomes part of two separate design packages, which uh, I refuse to accept. As you can imagine, I'm, I can be a bit of a tyrant to designers. I can I can blow your mind that t- Tideway has six. <laughs> six. Jesus. <Webb. laughs> yeah, no, we have grip stage one to five. Well, one to eight. Sorry. But like five to eight of the uh, no, sorry, six to eight of the build five is the detailed design. And three's optioneering and four's like the AIP. Um, but even even still, there's still um, it's not hard doing electrical design, not for railways. It's the earthing and bonding that's murder. It's the external influences that is murder. It's understanding the system's configuration. That's the hard bit. Um, the train operator I now work for, we are effectively network rail now. We're not a train operator. Well, we run the trains, but we also manage the infrastructure. So it's a different job. My last job, we were just a top, like when I was with First Capital Connect, we were a TOC who ran the trains and did facilities management. This one, if a platform collapses or a building collapses, it's on us. If a bridge collapses, it's on us. If a station catches fire, it's on us. So I've got got 26 stations. I'm responsible for electrical compliance, fire compliance. I'm a responsible person under form order. I do lots of input on new station builds. And I I find it not boring. the guys who work for me have gone through some challenges because they've had to do spark safe which was quite difficult quite a challenge and we're introducing those new technology which means they've got to really get their brain cells going so it's a busy i'd love to be able to make it in two three years time an electrical center of excellence and be able yeah. to go wow look at all this new technology look at this is how here's some new work that is a standard that i can put on social media not there yet got a long yeah. way to go yeah background of all this at some point um you've you've registered as a chartered engineer yeah um i don't know if i should say this in a podcast but i will so when i was at dlr um i got zero support from my line management zero i don't care if they're listening it's true um their their comment to me was um i said can can i book some days to do this and their day their comment was book annual leave wake up at five o'clock in the morning and sit sit down in your cottage or wherever you're in and do it then that's how i did it it'll make it'll make a man out of you and i'm just thinking you're being a prick you're sorry i know i shouldn't swear but no sorry you're, you're being horrible you're being horrible there's no need to be horrible you're supposed to be supportive and kind and all the rest of it um he was a civil engineer so i knew he didn't understand and eventually i just sat there one christmas because nobody comes in at christmas so I, because I don't have kids, I always worked all of the holidays so that everyone could bugger off and be with their families. And I would just sit there and, and then one Christmas sat there and I went, I'm going to do it. It's now or never. So I did it. Um, I didn't finish it. And then I spent a year kind of polishing it and understanding it more. And then the next Christmas I got, I determined to get it all done. And in the end of that Christmas period, by about January, my, I found some supporters, got it signed off. And it took 10 months from submission to completion. And the reason being was because was when they got it, they didn't understand it because I don't have a degree or a HNC or anything like that. So they asked me to do an additional competency report, um, which was a technical report. I submitted that. Then they asked me to do a management report. So I did that. And when I submitted the management report, I was so angry. I literally in that email said, this is the last thing you're getting off of me. And if they asked me for anything more, I would have just withdrawn my application mm. because it had, it had drained me emotionally. It drained drain me it was a learning experience yeah and it was one that i didn't get much help on and that's why it was draining and then one day i was set at a factory test in brighton got an email saying your application is closed thought what 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 does that mean rung them up and they said can you pay whatever the fee is i said yeah why and they said oh you've passed you're chartered and that was it i went in and stopped the factory test and off to the pub yeah <laughs> uh, i got in trouble for it but um i didn't care i didn't care i was like sack me i'm chartered who cares I've got, I've got the impossible one. And they were like, you're the first person to get chartered with no degree in like 20 years. Yeah. Um, at the IET. Now, since then, which was, I think it was about three, four years ago, there's loads, loads and loads and loads and loads of people have now got it. I've helped about four or five of them um, do it, which is really cool. Um, always good to help them because when you're helping them, you can hear yourself in them. 
Mm. When they're saying, I don't understand, can I do it? And you just think when you're at the other end of that journey, all the jigsaw pieces come into place. So for me, the minute I got chartered, I then obviously signed up to do every voluntary role under the sun. Because when you do volunteering for the IET, they train you. Mm. So you can sit in a room with all your peers and go, I don't get it. And then eventually, by the end of the day, you do get it and you go, aha. And then what you end up doing is it's like it's like bolting a scope, a sniper scope onto a gun. It just makes you more efficient. Yeah. You know, it just everything you bolt on makes you more efficient, more effective. So now I can sit and advise people on Eng Tech, iEng and CEng, and they get it straight away. And I'm like, I'm sitting there going, I had no one to do that for me. And it's like, yeah. I'm so pleased you get it quicker. But then that just also makes me think that the IT are really poor at explaining the narrative. And and I do a lot of IT lecturing and volunteering at EngTech days. And a lot of guys will go there to shout and kick off. And I end up having to referee them and because I can talk in their language. Yeah. You know, there are times when I, if I'm sat in front of my board of directors, it's hello, ladies and gentlemen, la, 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 la. No swearing, best P's and Q's. But when I'm at home, I'm me. Mm. I'm Paul from a council estate and a family of 10. I don't pretend to be something i'm not um when i'm at work i know i have to be professional and people some people don't like swearing and all the rest of it so you have to exercise restraint i get that um but when i'm in engineering and i'm doing what i'm doing it's very hard to um stop the the hairy ass spark coming out and just going now it's a load of crap that's rubbish (laughs) but but it's also a very useful tool because everything i do i look out of how's it buildable i've sat in rooms with 70 plus people and put my hand up literally like a school child and then the leader of the meeting's gone paul would you like to talk how do you build that how do you do it and the whole room goes silence not one person has an answer yeah and before you know it they go can you explain and you explain your methodology and immediately the whole room goes oh yeah we've just wasted thousands of pounds in salaries talking about an idea that's not buildable Mm. so anyone listening to this who thinks my practical application of physical works and the way the real world works wouldn't succeed yes it would but it's really hard because you will get discriminated for upon for being um a bit rough around the edges shall we say um but i i I kind of accept that if if people do you know some people i work with will just frown at some of the sentences i'll use but that's me i can't change who i am no you know what i mean i can try and be more sympathetic to people but I think that's just part of getting to know each other. And for me in the workplace, it's more about just getting to know the behaviours and what drives people and what people do find offensive. So when I start a new job, when I start CTC, I was I was a mute for two weeks. Mm-hmm. Reading, just trying to gauge people's mental health, mental well-being, what drives them, their family, everything. Because the last thing we do is upset someone, offend them. I've always said at work, banter is wonderful. But there's a few off and you never, ever talk about anyone's family or wife or kids or how they earn their money. That's totally everything else is fair game for banter as far as I'm concerned. But at least take the effort to get to know someone and don't be captain insensitive is is my view. Yeah. So you mentioned, obviously, you represent the IET as well. I do. Yes. I don't Um, know how much longer. (laughs) i don't think so i think you're probably a very valuable asset i do i do do wonder they always say to me oh you're you're really good for us blah 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 and i always sit there and i'm thinking but all i ever do is kick you constantly and say no that's wrong that's wrong and then they go yeah you're really good for us and then you can see across the room people frowning you thinking i'm really upsetting these guys but then i think do you know what you need to be told yeah if there are too many yes men in the room it becomes a problem oh there's plenty of them there's plenty of them so you're a, a fellow of the IET as well. How, I, how did that come about? Um, it was really weird. So um, I've had a lot. Of, so I got my fellowship because I believe the assessors for my interview, um, because my interview was quite entertaining. Um, I went for it in my interview. I proved that I was what I said I was. I used all the evidence I've kept. Keep records, folks. Um I got approached and got told, you know, um, we think you might make fellow criteria. Could you have a look at the forms? Yeah, OK. So I look at these nine criteria and I the minute I looked at them, I, I went, oh, well, how can I evidence that? But then I realised, hang on a minute, I've been speaking at Lux Live for like four or five years now. I've gone to local colleges. I've done this. I've done that. And and I, I, I realised very easily that there was four or five of them that I could probably have a go writing up the criteria 
The trouble is, is the criteria for fellow, you have to sell yourself almost arrogantly. I hate to use that term, but it's more when you're doing CNG or ING, it's I did this, I did this, I did this. And almost with fellowship, it's like, and did you know I do that and I have achieved this and I sit at this position, la la. And, and the reason being is very simple because the criteria was a to be a fellow, you have to have a sustained position in the industry of leadership or inspiration or innovation for at least five years. So if you've gone out and gone, oh, well, I've gone and done a lecture in college. Can I have my fellowship? No. Oh, well, I set up an electrical contracting company. And mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily make you. You're a senior person in your own world. But if you've if you've volunteered to sit on a, um, a committee and you've been named, I mean, I'm, I'm the chair of the electrical safety roundtable for workplace safety. I didn't ask to do it. I got asked, well, I didn't ask, but I got asked to sit and take that position, which it means you're doing the right thing. You're making the right noises, even though, in fairness, when we started E5, we, some people thought we weren't making the right noises. But I've always, always volunteered. I've co- anyone who wanted help um, pretty much most evenings, um, always busy. I've still got two fellowships I've got to go through, two chartships I've got to go through in all of this madness and lockdown. Um, it's always something to do helping people. And I like that. Because people are everything, not necessarily institutes or organisations, or, or and that's my view. Yeah, well, I can I can verify that. You've obviously given up some of your time to help me, and it's been very much appreciated. That's all right. Don't worry. Don't worry about it. You'll get the bill eventually. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so obviously you're kind of touching on it again. I've kind of left the beast till last and E5. Yeah. So as well as all that that you've done you've obviously started e5 in the background as well and probably we won't go too much into the e5 story because i think that's probably pretty well documented but yeah in terms of representing the iet what what made you decide to go away and start e5 that you couldn't do representing well e5 e5 started before i was doing stuff for the iet e5 started in the dlr um e5's original name which i think i said once before was power club power club club. it was power club it was a corner so what it was was it was me the power engineer and a power engineer for our subby we used to lunch together Mm. and oh it was a comms engineer as well i was a dlr comms engineer and honest to god i i genuinely genuinely mean this i made some of the most wonderful friends that it was a uh, we became in work brothers mm. and when when i wasn't around my brothers looked after all my interests and everything else and when i weren't around they had my back and i've still got the leaving card that they they wrote for me and honestly it really moved me to tears when i left there yeah. Um, but yeah we started e5 do you know i might actually see if i can dig out the drawings and put them on instagram um the original 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 logo designs of a shield um we we sat around and 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 kind of debated it because everybody was wearing badges and i thought you know what everybody's wearing these sodding badges but nobody's got a badge that kind of like indicates they want to be better they want to do better and that was kind of where we came up for the idea of well well, let's make our own badge and i thought you know what i'm going to pay out of my own salary for this this is worth it Mm. and um, when i was doing my application for chartership it was then i read that document and i just went up to the comms engine i went read that and he went, that's wicked, man. That is wicked. And the first thing he said to me was, nobody, nobody, nobody bloody follows it. No mm. one follows this. No one follows this. How have we got all these chartered engineers who we've had many a row with, you know, and, and in the supply chain and all sorts. And yet none of them are following this and they're all supposed to follow it. And I was like, yeah, you're right, actually. And that was it. That's stuck in my brain. E5, 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 E5. And eventually I just thought, what do I put on a badge? What do I put on a badge? And that was it. It was just E5 yeah because if i ask a question it would start the journey of knowledge and inquisition i never thought it'd become what it has become i still say to people it's we've not even got started because i think it can become something that is a a beacon of hope uh, um a safe place for people to go to to come mm. to um for people to volunteer their services in any way they can um it's hard so many people say they get e5 and they don't yeah. um what typically do you think they're not getting? You probably asked the hardest question ever. Um, 
E5 is a mindset and a behavior. It's not a, if I do this, will I be E5? Mm. It's not a membership. It's a mindset. So it is, is an interesting, it's an exclusive. So you look at, you look at the likes of John Ward, for instance, John Ward is E5 through and through. Why? John Ward doesn't do his YouTubing because he wants to be famous. He couldn't, you've seen a conversation. He doesn't care. He doesn't do it for anything other than it keeps him busy and it, he thinks it might help people. It does. In the, the body of his knowledge helps people. And with us, he realized when we first started to meet him that we didn't want him because he was John Ward. Um, we, we offered our respect to him and our friendship and we've all become really firm friends. I mean, it, John is hysterical. John is really nice, hysterical guy. He's quiet and solemn which is also fine. And we accept and, and respect John. And I've always said the best friendships and in, in my opinion, the only friendships start based on respect. Mm. Not this. Hey, buddy. Hey, buddy. And I've had so many people come up to me and go, oh, yeah, yeah. Hey, buddy. Yeah. What can I do for E5? And I'm like, first of all, I don't know you. I'm not your buddy. No offense, but I, I genuinely am not your buddy um, because I don't know you. I can't be your friend, but I will be nice to you. I will help you out. And then. You realize that some people I've had so many people offer me money to buy E5 from me um, or to buy into it. And then you just sit there and you listen to them. And you're just thinking we should do this. And I'm like, it's not about that. It's about being nice to be nice. It's about using that document, which is a side thing as a as a something that you can reflect on every six months even and just go. Oh, yeah, uh, that's a that's sort of uh, that's saying I've got work towards. It's not doctoring. That's why on the, the new logo. The new badge, I put that circle of improvement. I've yeah. had so many people say to me, your E5 members being disgraceful. Well, first of all, he's not my member because we're not membership. Secondly, if he wears an E5 badge, he's telling you he's trying to improve himself. Mm. Now, if he slanders your family or you or does anything that breaches them, fair enough, I'll go and take the badge off of him. 99.999% of the times, what is it? Personality, egos, jealousy, bullying. Call it what you want. We have experienced... I can't even begin to tell you or show you some of the hate messages, the nasty messages, the, and, and, and that, again, that's kind of one of the reasons why we get on with the likes of Tom Nagy as well is because there just seems to be a hate almost for people who are trying to be nice and do the right thing and not ask for anything back from it. And yeah, it's, um it's just a group of people who are just trying to be nice to each other and, and be friends based on respect, not what can you do for me? Mm. Do you think you know there's, there's an element of them not being potentially included that, that that makes them want to lash out or something like that. Yeah. But the trouble is, is the inclusion is down. It's down to that person, what they include, but they have to realize that if you're going to join any group of friends and again, it's like I've had people say to me, Oh, well, the main founder members, well, the main founder members are the ones that have gone on that journey and have worked. We've, we've taken weekends away from our family. We've booked hotels to go and talk about how we can combine our knowledge, how mm. we can combine our strength, how we can come up with a set of values. They're the founder members, the ones who gave so much of a crap that they've gone out above and beyond and helped develop that logo with the with the values in it and, and, and have gone far above and beyond. Other people have just wanted to turn up and go, right, I'm now, can I be a founder now? No. Mm. But why don't you just do, and this is what the term Dave used, do the work, have the right attitude, the right ethos, and you will naturally gravitate into it because we'll see that and go, this is great. How can we help support what you're doing? How mm. can we make what you're doing better? How can, and, and do you know what will come from that? A mutual respect based on honesty, based on the fact that you don't want anything from me. I don't want anything from you. And, and then friendships begin. And then that's when people will say, Oh, it'd be really good to do this. Is there any, or someone needs help. I know someone who can help that person. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And it's not it's not necessarily yeah. asking for favours. It's more of I know he can help because that's his mindset. His behaviours are somebody who wants to help. Mm-hmm. And it makes your industry a lot smaller. And trust me, this industry is so small now for me. It's frightening. Um, but there's still a long way to go. And, I, yeah, I'd like us to be something more formal. Um, what? I can't have money near it because it will just it just pollutes everything. But I don't know what that answer is yet. I'm happy to just organically grow it. And I know 
as we've said before, we've got to spend as much time as we can helping the colleges, mm-hmm. the learners, um, because this industry is, is, oh, my God, the technology that's coming and the yeah. stuff that's out there. We'd be fools not to. Mm. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with that. Um, so back to you then. Where where do you see yourself going in the years to come? I have no idea. In all but me personally? Yeah. Um, Job-wise, um, I like a challenge. I think job-wise, I'd like to be a consultant because I think I'm at that point now where I know that I know things and I know what I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm aware of my competency. I, I, I genuinely say this, probably the last 10 years of my career, I've been aware of my competency levels, but now I really do know my competency levels. And I do think with my asset management training and development I've done for the last 10 years, I think eventually I will be a consultant, not a bad consultant, <laughs> a decent one who um, can help people and help businesses. I think that's where the value really lies. Personally, um, in 10 years, I just want to be alive, to be honest with you. Um, I want my missus to have a comfortable home, comfortable life. I want her not to work because she works in mental health and it's destroyed her for nearly 20 years. And now that we've got this stupid virus thing, mm. It's she's ramping up for their maximum. Well, she's busy now, but she now sits in the front room and she's swamped and it's horrible because the stuff she has to deal with. And I think this this virus is going to have it's going to take five. We're going to be feeling the impacts for five to ten years, I think. Yeah. 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 They're nice, modest goals to achieve. Yeah. I just want a comfortable home. I've never wanted anything much. My, my home will be always be a home for retired um, doggies. I love dogs. I've never wanted much. Mm. I never had much. So I never wanted much. All I wanted was a home that was paid off that I could sit and enjoy and potter around the garden. Um, I know when I get to the age of 60, I want to retire. But when I'm 60, I, I still want to do stuff. So I'll either do voluntary work for an institute or I'll go to college and teach. Um and hand back my knowledge and experience but that's yeah. it I've, I've never i've never i've never i've never i want to be the you know the ruler of the electrical industry i want to be this i want to be, no um do you know what whatever falls into my lap i'll be humble and i'll be smart with yeah do you think it's still within the rail sector i'm tempted to get out of it although i know people in other sectors that say it's you know it's every sector's got its good and bad points the temptation for me to get into another sector would be um, the the learning curve. You'd have to go on the knowledge journey chasing because I know the rail industry backwards. It's just like, ugh, I just know it. Mm. Um, I don't see it. There's no challenge in doing stuff in it for me anymore. Um, but if I went into nuclear, that would be hard. Um, or if I went into social housing, that would be hard. Mm. Um, There's small worlds. Um Part of me, oh, do you know what? I want my, with all this stuff that's gone on in the NHS, part of me want my working in the NHS. Yeah. You know, I, I I don't need to be a client. I'd I, I'd quite happily like look after a hospital or as a maintenance manager, or I don't need rank and title. I just want to be able to feel like I'm contributing. And one of the things I love about E5 is if work is just a grind, where you're doing design review, you you don't really feel much of a contribution, although you are. Technically, when you're doing design review, you're doing other people's jobs in telling them where they've gone wrong, which is frustrating as a client because clients shouldn't have to put that many comments on the design, but they do constantly. But that's a bigger problem in the construction industry. I don't know. I don't know. Let's just see what wave hits us and yeah. where we go, really, I think is the. That's fair enough. I'm, I'm, I'm very similar in that I don't really try to plan. It just, you know, even like with the role I'm on at the minute, I refuse the interview the first time and they just pestered again so I, all right i'll do one over the phone and it just happened to be perfectly honest that's not a bad thing the thing is m e guys in our industry um and i use the term m e guys because if you do electrical and you go into management you're always having to there's always a level of learning or association with mechanical systems that you have to understand and learn on the fly um railway's got a good term for it so if you're an m e manager you're mechanically biased with an electrical bolt on if you're an e&m manager you're electrically biased with a mechanical bolt on because you know the railways are quite you know get it right use the correct terms mm. so for my career i've always been an e&m guy yeah and then when i've had people going do you want to be an ME manager i'm always like no i don't want to <laughs> because that's my mindset that's what my industry says but yeah now they've got this stupid thing that come from america mep mechanical electrical public health 
Which oh, really? I've always been stuck with the uh, MICA, M-E-I-C-A. That's always so that me- Mechanical, electrical, instrumentation, controls. And, and automation. automation. Yeah. That's another American <laughs> term that came over here 20 years ago. It's just, yeah. I don't know. Oh, weird terms. Don't be afraid of them. No, yeah. Probably on a little bit more of a positive note then. What what do you really enjoy about the electrical industry? I know we might have probably we might have touched on it already, but what do I enjoy? Um, um, number one enjoyment is helping people because it validates my own knowledge, um, and I enjoy learning what's coming. We me me and David Watts especially and JW actually in fairness to JW because JW's got the bug big time. Um, we are we call ourselves the three amigos now because we've we've kind of gone on this. Um, this regular chase of new and upcoming European standards. And I find that we did, we, we can do Skype calls for now three hours where we just talk about stuff and read it out and say, what does that mean? And what do you think? And it's great that I enjoy it because you're almost having fun with the boring stuff. And mm. for me, I have always loved making the boring stuff fun. And if it means acting a buffoon, or throwing yourself under the bus for a bit of humour, I have no problem with it because the electrical industry, a lot of it, sadly, can be very monotone and very boring. However, I've learned that when you infuse passion into the subject, it wakens it up. Mm-hmm. And the guy who taught me my 239, honestly, mate, he bounced around the room, bounced around, literally physically bounced around the room, didn't stand still for a minute, moving his arms, punching the air, just incredibly driven and enthusiastic i loved him for it Mm. and yeah so i love helping people and i love learning what's coming um and kind of keeping my grace cells going with that really but the the helping people is for me the yeah wicked yeah i'll be doing that for the rest of my life without a doubt yeah that's brilliant bit of a loaded question the next one but one thing you'd like to see introduced into the industry I'm going to say the most controversial thing that's ever been said on your podcast. The one thing I would like to see introduced in this industry sooner rather than later is the authorization and sanctioning of electricians. And by that, I mean um, a clear staged roadmap for people of different access points and entry points to level them up to uh, the competence they need to do the specific task and also sanctions to effectively tap people on the shoulder and say, take your stuff and get out of our industry. Because there are people who are in our industry who just need throwing out. Mm. Sadly, they won't be educated because they're too stubborn, they're too ignorant. And there is a percentage of our industry who don't, they don't even know these facts. You think of, you know, you look at the social media folks, the people who regularly are on social media, they're only 1% of 1% of 1% of the people in our industry. Mm. So you're not an influencer of them, are you really? You know, we, we, we I get emails regularly for people who've just discovered our podcast. I'm sure you'll get the same because it becomes a body of work that sits in cyberspace. Um, mm. uh, authorization into the industry has to happen and sanctions and removal from the industry has to happen because I've seen too much bad. And I don't just mean that people on the tools. I mean, people from the committees. I mean, people from industry bodies. I mean, and that's proper militant, that is, but I mean, at all levels, people should be tapped on the shoulder and, and told, um, you know, come into the industry, you're good, you've got the right attitudes, the right behaviours, and when they're not, they need to be told, please move aside, please go away. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I see that a lot. I mean, I, I was looking the other day, um, this, is, this, is, this is one example of how silly our industry is, okay? So there was a, this is over a year ago, it's an example of committees so um the low voltage um section 709 of the wine rigs is um special occasions for harbors and marinas yeah yeah the committee that published that standard released it on the 12th of january 2018 for public comment the end date for public comment same day same day so those people should be thrown out of our industry because there should be at least six weeks there should be a chance to do something and that is unforgivable. And that tells you straight away that the end goal is financial and not safety. And it, and it does annoy me. Um, and I do think there are some radical changes needed. But 
the industry needs to sit down and have the conversation and every part of the industry needs to realise that they all have to make sacrifices and they all have to take steps. And I know Dave Watts is probably going to be listening to this and agreeing and going, yeah, 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 because Dave Watts says it far better than me. Yeah, I can't I can't disagree with anything you've said, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, very succinct and to the point. Um, it's It's been uh, a fascinating chat with yourself and I'm, I'm sure we'll probably have to do this again because I, I know we could probably fill another hour but um i'm gonna i'm gonna call it here okay. um i do have one last question though yeah what's your favorite movie i've heard you ask this in the other ones and it's a difficult one <laughs> um do you know what do you know what i'll tell you what my favorite film of all time dave 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 sigourney weaver and um oh, what's his name and i've forgotten his name it was about the guy who played the, dub, the double of the president. It was from 1988. Um, the soundtrack, I've got the soundtrack. Um, I've watched it probably a thousand times. It's a feel-good movie. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Kevin Klein, I think his name is. Yeah, Kevin Klein. Oh, right, yes. Fever. He yeah. plays the double for the American president who has a stroke, and he all of a sudden makes him really nice instead of horrible. Um, yeah. That's a feel-good film for me and i i love a feel-good film so dave if you've never seen it google it it's on itunes um i own it uh oh i you know what? I've just remembered flight the navigator as well oh there's so many I... i'll pick i'll pick dave i'm gonna go for dave all right bro all right well no yeah it's been fantastic talking to you um Sorry, and uh thank you everyone for listening to this final one of series one